want to remind everyone to chime in a little bit on tonight's uh, fall what do we call it? Back to school bash, fall kickoff. Uh, we are excited about that for tonight with the youth group. And we do want to remind you, those students that are coming, that, that it is a costumed party. That there is a competition and the one that has the best western wear, western attire, will win a prize of some significance. I don't know what significance that'll be, but it will be of significance and at least it will be pride. Okay, so we want to invite you to do that, but we also want to let you know that you get a free cowboy hat if you come, and they're pretty legit. So uh, come on out and join us tonight. It's going to be a good time. Uh, bring a friend with you, and we look forward to seeing you this evening as we celebrate moving into the school year and all God's doing. I do want to draw your attention to something, because it's easy for us to miss it in, in the normal, just going through the motions of this Sunday morning. You may wonder, like, we do all this contemporary, so why do we have an orchestra? Well, I've told you this before, but I want to remind you, we do the orchestra because the students asked to do the orchestra. And over the course of this morning as we've gone, I don't know if you've seen it, but I'm going to, again, draw your attention to it. We had a baptism of a young elementary-aged girl. We had teenagers and high schoolers and, and middle schoolers sitting up here filling a good portion of the orchestra. And then we have teenagers and high schoolers and a intermediate school young lady, she's almost middle school, Montica, up here playing guitar and doing a great job. That's signs of life. And then we had a baby over there, amen, and as we got things started. That's signs of life. And I hope that excites you when you come in to see that God is doing something and there's life here and, and, and things are moving uh, according to his plan and purpose. So I praise God this morning for all of the, well, I say this in a very generous way, but all the kids that we have involved that are leading, right? The children that are involved in the process, young and old. So thank you to all the parents that, that trust us with them, uh, whether it be in youth group or here on Sunday mornings. Bring them out, get them to rehearsals. And we are so grateful. And I hope that you all are grateful for all that they do and their courage to stand up in front of you and share their skills. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to his word. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for the great love with which you've loved us through the work and person of Jesus Christ, Lord. The reminder this morning of baptism that, that you died and, and you went into the grave and rose again, but your grave wasn't warm water in a church sanctuary, Lord. Your grave was a hard stone tomb. But all the same, you rose in victory. Lord, your word tells us that if we trust in you, that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave resides in us as well. Lord, giving us the hope and confidence in a coming resurrection. Lord, may we live in that resurrected life in the here and now. May we, may we heed and hear the calling that you have for us, Lord, and accept our place and step forward to serve according to your mission and vision for this world. May we be lights shining brightly, calling all to repentance. May we be molded and remade into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, speak to us this morning through the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you follow my articles or you read them in the paper or in our, our bulletins, you'll, you'll notice that a couple of weeks ago I wrote about a childhood story. 
The little red hen. How many of you know the story of the little red hen? Anybody know that? It's one of those ones that gets in your mind and for me and then just keeps resonating there. And, and I love the story. And I, I wrote about what I call the little red hen effect. And in order for us to understand what I mean by the little red hen effect, you got to have a, 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 the story in mind, right? So the way the story of the little red hen goes is, and there are several different versions, but I'm telling it, so it's going to be my version, right? So the, the little red hen is like bebopping around the barnyard. And as she's doing her thing, she comes across some wheat. So she decides, hey, you know what? We could use some more of this. So I'm going to plant some. And I, what I want to do is I want to have enough wheat so that I can make some bread. So as she's walking around the barnyard, she begins talking to her barnyard friends and family members. And she says, all right, hey, who wants to come and help me plant this wheat and prepare the field and put it in? So she walks around and she goes, she goes to the rat. And she says, all right, Mr. Rat, you want to help me work the field? And the rat says, not I. Goes on and comes to the cat and says, Miss Barnyard Cat, do you want to come help me work the field? Not I, said the cat. Goes to the dog, would you like to help me work the field? Not I, said the dog. Goes to the cow, goes to the, the horse, same answer. Not I, not I, not I. Wheat's planted in, in the ground and begins coming up, but there are weeds, there are weeds in, the, in the garden that need tended. And so the little red hen goes again to her barnyard mates and says, hey, who will help me care for the garden? Who will help me weed, pull the weeds in the garden? And, and again, the rat, the cat, the dog, the, the horse, the cow all say, not I, <laughs> not, not, not I. Time passes and it comes time to harvest the grain. And the, cat, the, 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 the hen goes again, the little red hen goes again to all of her barnyard friends and says, who will help me harvest the grain? Oh, not I, not, not I, not I, not I. Who will help me thresh and grind the grain? Not I, not I, not I, not I. Who will help me bake the bread? Not I. Of course, the story goes, the bread gets done and everybody can smell the aroma wafting through the barnyard and everybody starts coming to the door and she's like, the bread is wonderful. Who, and I always love this part, I don't know the author, but the author like is super petty in the book, right? Because everybody is gathering in the story around the, the barnyard because they smell the bread. So clearly we know they want to eat the bread but just for the good of the cause. The little red hen says, now who wants to eat some bread with me? And everybody's like, I do, I do, I do. And the little red hen is like, absolutely not. You can sit here and watch me and my chicks eat this bread because I did all the work. When it was time to plant the grain, you all said, not I. When it was time to work the field, you all said, not I. When it was time to harvest the grain, not I. When it was time to prepare the wheat, not I. And now when all the work is done and it's time to enjoy the fruits of the labor, everybody's lining up. No thank you. Not you. Now here, here's what I, why I call this the little red hen effect, because I see this in our society so often. And I'm going to be real with you. I see it in our church sometimes. Everybody wants the results. 
Everybody wants the end product. Everybody wants the good programs. Everybody wants the good worship band. Everybody wants the choir. Everybody wants a clean facility. Everybody wants, we, let's keep, we can keep going and going and going. Everybody wants to do the, the fundraiser to raise money for missions and evangelism. Everyone wants to see the mission trips. But when it comes time to say, all right, who is going to do this with me? You know what we often get? Not I. I've done my time. Not Not I. I'm busy. I got other things going on, not I. Now listen to me. I am not trying to throw shade, well, not too much shade, but I'm not trying to be hateful because I do it too. But the little red hen effect is us wanting the end results, wanting to to enjoy the fruits of the labor without actually wait for it, doing the labor. Without actually getting in the field and getting our hands dirty, without actually getting out of our comfort zone, leaving our air-conditioned facilities and going out into the heat of the day and doing the necessary work. And this is a problem that we've seen throughout the history of the people of God, lest we think that we're just picking on us. This is a problem throughout the history of the people of God that Jesus himself addressed in the Gospels. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 35. Matthew 9, 35 into chapter 10, but again, starting in 9, 35, it says this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out his workers into the harvest field. Chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out. With instructions. Those instructions are essentially go do exactly what you've seen me doing. You go out and preach and teach the gospel in all the towns and villages. You go out and you heal and and touch and care for the harassed and helpless sheep of Israel. You go care for my people. You go do the work of the ministry. It's a model we see throughout the the life and ministry of Jesus. This this taking of everyday, ordinary folks like you and I and handing the responsibility of the ministry to us. And it's as if Jesus is saying to his followers and saying to you and I today, who's going to help in the harvest? And how will we answer? You see, Jesus modeled a missional life. 
Jesus modeled a missional life. And I went back and forth, like, how did I want to phrase this? Like, because missional is a, 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 an inherently church word. It's a word we use around the church, but I, it's a word I want you to know. Because we are called to be a missional people, a people that is on mission, a people that, that everything we do is saturated with the grace and with the message of the gospel. That every day, every step, every interaction should, should have some understanding of our calling as the people of God. We should be living missional lives. Lives that, that every day is, is a stepping out onto a mission field. It's what we saw, we can see in the life of Jesus throughout his three years in ministry, right? The man was clearly on mission, clearly on point, clearly everywhere he went, he had, he had an agenda in mind to, to love the people, to call them to repentance, and to point them to the goodness and compassion of God Almighty. Here it tells us that Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every sickness and disease. We might actually say that Jesus was the first true missionary. He was the first one to go on a mission trip, if you will, across the whole of Judea and Israel, sharing the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance, telling people of the greatness of God, and caring for the needs of the people. Matthew tells us that he went through all of the towns and the villages. And what is assumed to be meant by that is throughout the region of Galilee. It is believed there was not a town in Galilee that Jesus did not visit and in which he did not preach and care for the people. According to Josephus, a historian who lived about a generation after Jesus, there were 200 plus or minus distinct villages, towns, or cities in the region of Galilee. If Jesus visited two a day, it would have taken him three months of continuous work to visit and preach and teach and care for the people in all of them. Jesus, Jesus burned at both ends. And now I'm not saying that you and I should, should act that way. We, 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 we are on a different level than Jesus. Jesus, as, as J.J. likes to say, Jesus was built different, Right? But the reality that they're pointing out is that there was an urgency to what Jesus was doing. And he carried a very heavy work light. He was very, he was very serious about his ministry. I'm going to tell you what, just speaking on Sunday, just speaking once on Sunday morning and leading worship and, and doing 20 or 30 minutes on the front end and back end of, of, of shaking hands and hugging people and, and touching babies, like it, it seems like that would be a fairly easy thing. But I get done with this Sunday morning service and I just am dead inside. Everything is gone. I can only imagine what it had to be like for Jesus to go preach and teach and heal all the sick in that community, and then have to walk however far it was from where he did his first service to the next. That's a grind. That's dedication. That's being locked in. Now again, Jesus' ministry, it tells us here, it consists of three things. It's what's often known as the threefold ministry of Jesus. Teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming or preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and healing every sickness and disease. 
It's a pattern regularly repeated throughout Matthew and even in the rest of the Gospels, that this is what we see Jesus doing. We, we might say that Jesus worked to meet the intellectual, spiritual, and physical needs of the people with whom he came into contact. He, he ministered to the entire person, to their mind, to their spirit, into their body. It reflects the, the Trinitarian ideas that we see in, in the, the first century. This idea that the person is broken into these three parts. The mind, the spirit, and the body. And what's so important to me about that is that Jesus didn't seek to just do an either or of one part of what a person needs. Jesus understood the holistic need of the human experience. And he sought to minister them in every possible way that they needed it. We at times like to get it twisted and we like to look or value one or the other over the others. We like to focus in on we just got to get people saved. That's what we got to do. We got to get them to the altar. We got to get them to pray a prayer and then we got to get them into the water. That's the priority. Deal with that spiritual need. Deal with their eternity and take care of that needs. That is the priority. Or, or we say, you know, well, wait, 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 wait. They got to live a long life on this earth and people aren't going to care about the spiritual needs unless we care about the physical needs. So we got to feed these people and we got to feed the people and we got to clothe them and we got to help get them some understanding about some good financial sense and making good financial decisions. We got to make sure that they're in, in good standard housing and we've got to care for all these physical needs. And that is the priority. We'll worry about all the other stuff later. Or we, we say, you know what, if we don't know God, if we don't really know God in our mind, if we don't understand the word of God, if we don't study it and, and understand all the details, and we don't have a good theological structure from which to understand the Bible, and if we don't, if we don't spend enough time in the classroom understanding, we're never going to do it. So we really need to focus on redeeming the minds of these people. But you realize that to do any of the others, to the, any of these at the exclusion of the others, creates an incomplete gospel. That, that Jesus cares about the entire person. Jesus doesn't just want to feed a person spiritually. He, he took care of their needs physically. He doesn't just want to heal them spiritually. He healed them physically. And he did want them to understand the whys and, and, and the hows and the whens that went behind it. But Jesus was concerned with the entirety of of the person. And I think that we should be as well. But we see these three different models, right? Jesus is teaching in their synagogues. Well, what does that mean? How, how might we see that in today's culture? This is what we would think of as preaching the word in a formal worship service. What we're doing right now, where, where you have someone with some manner of education who's standing up or some, who's done some studying, who has something to say, who stands up in front of a crowd and says, this is what God's word says and how you can apply it to your lives. Or you might even think of it as a, a Sunday school class or, or some other kind of a structured gathering where you have someone who has done studying, has some level of understanding that they are then going to share with another what we see in the model of Jesus as he went to the towns, he was often invited to step into the pulpit, if you will, at local synagogues. 
And he would be invited as a rabbi. And for those that don't know, rabbi was an official title and designation. It is believed, and it's not just believed, we can look at first century Judaism and know that Jesus was essentially an ordained rabbi. Meaning that other rabbis at some point had taken recognition. He had been through some kind of process and they said, yes, this is someone you can trust and listen to. He has something worthwhile to say. There's historical record that confirms that over and over again. And Jesus was constantly invited to fill the pulpit whenever he would step into a town. I remember one time when I was in Bible college, one of our assignments was uh, in an ecclesiology, a church class. What, what, how does the church function? One of our assignments was that we had to go to a different church that was not ours and watch how they functioned. So me being me and being in West Virginia, I got with two or three of my buddies, and we decided that if we had to go to a different church, we were going all the way. My buddy said, my buddy Aaron said, hey, you, you want to go to a real different church? And I was like, absolutely, I do. He said, I know where there's a snake handling church. And I'm like, done and done, right? Which for those that know me makes no sense because I'm terrified of snakes, so we go to this snake handling church, and, and we come walking in, and they've got some people working and playing some music up at the front. And of course, like, it's West Virginia down in the holler, so the you're not from around here kicked in real fast. Like, they knew that we weren't from that area, and so they all start coming up. They were super friendly, and, and the pastor comes up. He's like, where are you all from? And we're like, we're from Appalachian Bible College. We're here for an assignment, and uh, we're just excited to be here and see how you guys do things. He's like, all right, well, there's anything we can do for you all, let us know. You know, we don't expect you to handle the snakes, but those that visit, they get, to, they get first choice if they want to. And we're like, yeah, we're good, man. I'm good. So it's like, all right, well, let us know if you need anything. Well, service starts, and they do some worship, and it is lit. It is all kinds of lit. People dancing all over the place, and the songs are going, and they're doing their snakey majabber thing at the front, and we're in the back going, yeah. But anyways, they get done with all of the worship, and all of that's done, and they sit down to take a little break so someone can do some preaching. And the pastor gets up, and he goes, well, we got some guests here with us this morning from the Appalachian Bible College down the road. He looks to the back and he goes, any y'all preach, boys? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> Not I, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's snakes up there, you know. So, but I'm sitting there and it struck, suddenly it's like, you know what? Aaron just got ordained two weeks ago. And I'm like, my buddy's ordained. He just got ordained two weeks ago. And he likes to say, you got to have one in the heart and one in the hand. So I'm sure Aaron's got a message this morning. My boy Aaron should preach for you. And Aaron's like, I got a message. So Aaron gets up there and he drops a hardcore word. He does a great job just bringing this message. He was ready to go. And then the pastor comes and puts his arm. He's like, I got a snake just for you over there. And the sermon was over. You know, Aaron's done. Back to the back. This is something that we don't see a lot in our, our everyday culture. We're, it, it is never, I will say never, it is very likely that it's not going to happen here, that someone walks off the street and I say, hey, you want to preach this morning? Probably not going to happen. We don't do that anymore. It's not how we function. But that's what this is. It's, it's, a, it's a readiness, and I do think that we should be ready. I think Aaron's, Aaron's statement is valid, that we should always have the message of the gospel on our heart. Is that not what Paul tells his young protege when he says, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have? 
we should know the truth and we should be ready and willing to share it when the opportunities arise. But teaching is an attempt to deepen our understanding and to reveal proper avenues of application in one's own life. In a religious sense, it is an attempt to understand the word of God and God himself in order that we might maintain a right relationship with him and others. Teaching is an attempt to mold the mind in order to motivate the hands. To inform right action based on right understanding. So Jesus would go and he would teach in their synagogues. But then we see this proclamation of the good news. We would call this evangelism or preaching of the gospel. The proclaiming of the good news of the kingdom, like teaching, has practical applications, but the impact is inherently spiritual. It is more ethereal. It's something that's out there. It's not something that you're going to physically touch. The application is something that is internal. It's something that we then believe. And a major part of the ministry of Jesus, and part of what differentiated him from other teachers, was this authoritative declaration, not that God's kingdom was coming, but that God's kingdom was here, and that an open invitation was available to all who would believe. It was a revolutionary change in the understanding and the functional reality of salvation. Before, the only way to be saved was to become a Jew, to, to, to join them on a political, national level. Jesus says, that's not what this is about. Everybody, everybody is invited into my kingdom. There's a party coming because the kingdom is here and everybody's invited and we need to share that invitation with as many people as possible. Jesus served as a herald sharing the good news of the coming of salvation for the entire world. That's what proclaiming of the good news of the kingdom is. It's sharing the good news that salvation has come in the work and person of Jesus Christ. That we're not waiting for some salvation that is out there in the atmosphere somewhere, but that we are able to receive a salvation from God that comes inside and changes us in the here and now, but also giving us a hope for eternity. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom is, is a proclamation that aims to impact the heart or the spirit. Teaching aims to, to mold the mind. It's proclaiming the kingdom aims to impact and influence the heart. And healing of every disease and sickness, that one's pretty straightforward, isn't it? That Jesus would go through, it's often said that there was nary a sick person when Jesus left any town or village. Because everywhere Jesus goes, he is touching the sick. He is healing people. He is caring for, for the marginalized. He's loving the unloved. And we could go a step further, right? We might just take this as the physical, the physical care for the health and well-being of a person as medical realities. But the truth is we can extend this, can't we? Because we know that Jesus actually cared for the physical needs of people as well. That as he's standing on the hillside and Jesus preached, right? And Jesus didn't preach short sermons, Jesus preached day-long sermons where they'd been with him from the morning to the evening. And Jesus preaching all day. So I don't want to hear anybody complaining about the length of mine. But Jesus preaches these long sermons. And then he looks out and he's like, look, we, 
we got to feed these people. Now, if you want to throw shade at me about that, that's fine. But know that when you do, I'm going to be like, who wants to work the kitchen for me? Right? But Jesus looks out and he says, hey, you know what? We got to feed these people. Knowing full well in his heart and mind what he's going to do. And then what does he do? He feeds the people. Jesus, this healing and every disease and sickness, it impacts the body. It is a caring for the physical realities of the person. We see this in this this threefold ministry of Jesus, teaching in the synagogues, trying to, to influence and impact their understanding, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, seeking to bring them up to a point of spiritual decision and restoration and healing every disease and sickness, caring for the physical needs of the people. Our ministry should follow the mold of Jesus. It's not just one or the other, but all of the above. What is the foundation? What is this flowing out of? Right, Verse 35, it tells us that Jesus went doing all these things. And then verse 36 tells us this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. The compassionate heart of Christ is the foundation for carrying hands. The compassionate heart of Christ is the the foundation for carrying hands. It's not just about loving Jesus, but loving what Jesus did. It's not just about knowing Jesus, but but modeling what Jesus did. And that all is going to flow out of adopting the heart of Christ. The sight and plight of the people around him moved Jesus to act on their behalf. Now the word translated, he had compassion, is the strongest word available in the the Greek language for taking pity on the situation and struggle that someone is facing. The strongest word. Now when we think of compassion, we think of compassion as being a heart thing, right? That it breaks our heart. You know, you know, in the actual Greek, the word actually means that Jesus felt it in the very pit of his bowels, that his stomach turned. I like that better. It's kind of stark, right? That Jesus didn't just have like these, these you know, the op- whatever the opposite of warm fuzzies are. That Jesus didn't just feel bad and like, oh man, that's too bad for them. It's not just sympathy, like that's too bad that they're facing that. It's that Jesus actually had a visceral, physical reaction to the plight of the people around him. And what's interesting to me is it's not disgust. Jesus doesn't look at these people who are broken, these people who are hurting, these people who are hungry, these people who are desperate. He doesn't look at them and, and just in disgust go, man, that's gross. They should do better. It says that Jesus looks at them and his stomach turns because he just feels, in the depth of his being, he feels so bad for what they are facing. And I think there's something interesting about that for us because here we have the creator of the universe, right? By him and through him and for him, all things were created and nothing was created without him, right? That's what the scripture tells us. So here we have the creator of the universe, the eternally existent Christ, the very hands that made the universe and stitched those people together. And he looks at them and he had his stomach turns. You know why? Because the creator looked and said, this is not what I intended. 
This is not how this should be. He had compassion for their plight. He felt it in the deepest recesses of his being. And this always strikes me. I hope I, I hope I never get to a point where this does not move me in my spirit. Because think about how often in the Bible you see this phrase concerning Jesus. That he sees the people and the struggles they're facing and it stirs him at the very core of his being. That Jesus had compassion for the plight of the people. I'm not going to look them all up and read them for you, but, but you have them in your notes for today. You can look them up yourself. We see it here in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 9. But we could go on and turn just a couple of pages in Matthew 14, 14, in Matthew 15, 32, and in Matthew 20, 34, it says again in one form or another that Jesus had compassion for the people. We turn over to Mark, and in Mark 1.41, or Mark 5.19, or Mark 6.34, we see Jesus having compassion for the people. Or we could turn over to Luke, and in Luke 7.13, in Luke 19.41-42, again, we see Jesus having compassion for the people. And in each of those instances, that compassion led to action. It wasn't just a, oh, that's too bad, I'll pray for you, it's, that's bad. Let's do something about it. I love that. That Jesus doesn't just see our need and say, you know what, I'll be thinking about you. You'll be in my thoughts and prayers. No, Jesus, and, and we could say this definitively about Jesus in his entire life, that Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of the Father, looked down at us and said, you know what, I have compassion for those people. So much so that he left his seat in heaven, came and walked this earth, and died for you and I. In every aspect of his life leading to that, Jesus modeled the same mentality. That is a missional life. It is a broken heart, or as the text might say, stirred bowels, the turning of our stomach, that, that we see the situation in the world, and not that we're disgusted by what people are facing, but that we understand that it is an effect of sin in the world and its brokenness. And rather than being just disgusted, we are moved to meet needs, and to try to make it better in measurable ways. This is what we see in the life of Jesus over and over and over again. Interesting enough, in this context, Jesus is moved by the fact that, quote, these people without shepherd, they were sheep without a shepherd. Part of what stirred and turned Jesus' stomach was that the people who were intended to care for, to love, and to lead these people weren't doing their job. We can actually go to Revelation and see definitively that Jesus Christ looks at the church sometimes, and sometimes he looks at us, and his stomach turns when we don't do what he modeled for us. It is actually one of my driving fears in life. As a leader of the church, that Christ would look at me and that Christ would look at us and say, you missed it. You missed it. You did all these things and you had all these pretties and all of these programs, but you didn't care for my people. What did Jesus say to Peter when he restored him? Jesus didn't say to Peter, hey, Peter, do the right thing. He didn't say, Peter, don't sin. What did Jesus say to Peter when he restored him? 
Now that was inferred. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't tell people to repent. We should. But a big part of repentance is the right action that comes afterwards. And Jesus said to Peter, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter didn't, Jesus didn't say to Peter, all right, Peter, if you love me, you better make sure you construct the right theological system. Make sure that you have the right system of understanding of the scripture, the right interpretive method, because if you don't interpret the scripture right, Peter, you don't really love me. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Peter, look at, the, look at scripture and, and, and become this aesthetic, and, aesthetic and, and remove yourself from society that you can make yourself pure and untouched. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course I love you. All right, then feed my sheep. I love that. You know why? Because it fits in with my, my allegory or my metaphor of the barnyard, right? Jesus says, do you really love me? If you really love me, you're going to get out in the barnyard and do the work. You're going to care for my people. You're going to lead them in an appropriate and, and, and godly way. You're going to get down and dirty. Unless we think, oh, well, you're stretching on that one. He then went from telling Peter, if you love me, go feed my sheep, to tell him that, hey, these sheep are going to bite you, and they're ultimately going to lead you where you don't want to go, and they're going to stretch your hands wide in a way that you don't want them to do. And he's telling Peter, they're going to crucify you, Peter. You're going to do this good work, and people are going to misunderstand and mistreat you because of it. Do you really love me, Peter? I think he's saying the same thing to us today. Do we really love him? If we do, then we're going to do what he asked. What we see in the life of Jesus is that what Jesus felt in his spirit resulted in him moving and using his hands to meet the need. Too often we're content to stop with words. At times we assume that because we can't, we can't make a great movement to move the needle in the lives of these people that we just won't do anything. If we can't do everything, we won't do anything. We can't make a big difference. It's one of the things that is, I have a hard time with, with our, our modern fascination with telling people that, that hey, you're going to change the world one day. How about we stop that with that? First of all, it's way too much pressure. But do we have any right to tell someone that they're going to change the world if we can't change our own community? I'm not saying we shouldn't care about the plight of the world. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we need to have some more realistic expectations. Famous preacher once said, it's, it's hard for the world to believe us when we say, hey, Christ can change your life. And they look at us and they say, Christ can't change your church. We need to mobilize. The church must mobilize. We must get about the work of Jesus, following the example of Jesus. If caring for the needs of the people and all of these levels was so important for Jesus and, and at the heart of, of Jesus' ministry. What does that mean for us? The compassion of Jesus moved beyond personal and individual holiness, as important as that is, to heartfelt love and service to alleviate the suffering and, and to care for the needs of others in order that they might believe and receive his saving grace. compassionate heart of Christ is the foundation for caring hands and that's to what Christ is which is called that, that, that is what Christ is calling us to the good news for you and I today is that God will provide the harvest 
The question for us today, though, is this. Who will provide the work? God will provide the harvest. Who will provide the work? It's the little red hen again, right? Here's the tools. Who wants to work the field with me? Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest then to send out workers into his harvest field. i got to ask the question, how do we see the massive mess of humanity in the world around us? And the truth is, it is a mess. Make no mistake, the world is an unmitigated disaster area. But how do, when we look at it, what do we see? Do we look out with disdain and disgust? Do we see people getting their just desserts because of the sin and the poor decision-making skills of their lives? Do we see people getting what they deserve so we think we just should pull back and let them, let them have it? Sometimes I'm afraid that that is our tendency. You know, there were people in the Bible that had that same mentality. They were called Pharisees. They were called Sadducees. And they looked out at the world, and they're actually, we can look and we can see the, the reality of this. They, they called them the people of the world, and they were basically anybody that wasn't them. And in their teachings, they taught that these people, these people that were struggling and dealing with all of these hardships, they were to be seen as chaff to be burned at the end of time. That they were the dirty husks of society. That they, they were the throwaways of the world that were destined for destruction. They were a worthless mess to be burned and destroyed. That's not how Jesus saw it though, is it? Jesus looks out at the, the messy, dirty mass of humanity and he looks and he sees the harvest. He doesn't see the dirty husks on the outside. He sees the grain underneath. He sees something of, of infinite value that should be cared for and collected because it is something that is of such great value. The way we see people will determine the way in which we treat them. Further, the way we see people will determine whether or not we see them as worth our efforts and energy, worth our investment, and by extension, worthy of the love of Jesus. If Jesus, as he's walking around this earth, didn't see any unworthy of his love, what right do we have to see some that are unworthy of ours? And it's a hard thing to see the problem in the world, to see the reality of the sinfulness and the struggle and, and the reality. I get it. Listen, there are time without number here in the office that I struggle to check myself where people will come in and ask for help and I will see them stepping out of their car that I am sure is nicer and newer than mine with brand new tint, walking in, handing me an overdue electrical bill and everything inside of me is wanting to say, go sell your car. Make better financial decisions. There's a part of me that wants to be bitter and part of me that wants to say, you're just making bad decisions and you're getting what you deserve. I gotta be honest, I confess that that is the sin in my heart sometimes. And I have to check myself and say, you know what? I don't know why they've made the decisions they do. I don't know how they got the car. I don't know why they're in this trouble, but God has sent them to me in this moment to ask me for help. They had the humility to walk in this door to stand before me as another human being and say, I'm sorry, but I need help. 
And I'm here to tell you that there is a great amount of shame and humility in everyone who walks through our doors and says, I need your help. My job shouldn't be to further that shame, but to alleviate it. Say, you know what? You need help. We're here for you. Because that's what Jesus did for us. It's what Jesus consistently does for us. We need to check ourselves. The prayer of our hearts should lead to the movement of our hands. That's the thing that really struck me as I was looking at this passage this week. That Jesus says, hey, look, look out in the harvest. You see all of this? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord will send out workers into the harvest. A lot of times this is where we end the passage because we like this, right? It's, it's great that we come in here, we're comfortable, and we can pray and say, hey, Jesus, absolutely, I will commit to pray. I've actually been in the service, and I think I've preached it. Hey, who would, who would say today that they would pray that God would send workers out into the harvest? And everybody's like, yep, I'll pray. But notice where it goes into the very next chapter. Jesus doesn't stop by saying, hey, boys, pray. Pray that God would send workers out. Very next thing, Jesus says, hey, by the way, you are the workers. I'm going to give you authority. You go and you heal the diseases. You go and you teach and you go and you preach and you go and you share the gospel. And brothers and sisters, hear me today. That is you. That is not just me. Jesus could have, who would have been better to go preach the gospel and heal the sick and cast out demons and do all this stuff than Jesus? But Jesus saw fit to look out at his disciples and say, you know what? You do this. So today I'm telling you, you do this. Mission is the vision. Everybody say that with me. Mission is the vision. The vision of First Baptist Church is not that we come and be seat sitters. The vision of First Baptist Church is not that we just come and fill pews and hear good messages, which I hope you think you hear. And it's not to good, come and hear good music, which I hope you enjoy. It's not that you would come and, and just be passive participants that hear and take what is offered, but that you would come and be engaged and released to go out and be doers of the word as well as hearers. The truth is that the harvest is indeed plentiful. Do we see that in the world? Do we see that? And Jesus says to us today, hey, 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 who, who's going to go care for my sheep? Who wants to go harvest the harvest? Who's coming with me? Now, are we going to be like all of the, the barnyard animals? Say, hey, not, not I, <laughs> not I. It's dirty out there. Not, not I, not I. It, it's dangerous out there. And not, I, I've never done that before. You know, Jesus didn't give them the option. Oh, another one of my favorite stories is when Jesus is on the hillside and he says, hey, look, uh, we're going to look around. You see all these thousands of people. They're hungry. They've been with us for a long time. Um, how are you going to feed them? Go read it. That's what he, how, you go, how are you going to feed them? And Thomas kind of looks around, which is funny that he asked Thomas the doubter, right? And Thomas is like, uh, I doubt we can do that, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus knew what he was going to do. You know what? That's the good news for us today. That as Jesus calls to us and says, hey, the harvest is plentiful, 
and I want you to be the workers, is God is going to provide the harvest. And you may not have any idea what you're doing, but the good news is the God that resides within you does. And he wants to do in and through you more than you can ask or imagine. And it might not be an utter changing of everybody's life or a reframing of the community, but it might be making the difference in the life of one person. Yesterday, Jill and Derek Barley led a team uh, to go out and, and do the, the 1010 project with the alley where, where people went to help different people. And Derek reached out to me about an electric bill that, that needed some help with. And we talked back and forth about the reality of that. And the landing point was, hey, look, we don't know what the underlying issues are. But Derek was like, if we could just relieve this one thing, maybe that'll make at least some kind of a dent in the struggle they're facing. Maybe that's where we start. That we don't, we don't worry about harvesting the entire field, but worry about that one stalk of grain. Because that's something. The truth is, help is wanted. And God asks us this morning, who will go into the harvest field with me and bring the harvest in? My prayer this morning is that you and I would say, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll help. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. And I thank you for the great calling and responsibility that you have placed in our hands. Lord, we know in Matthew 28 that when you left this earth, that you left the responsibility of your mission to your followers. Lord, that you sent them to go and do what you, do, you did, Lord, to go and to preach the gospel, to go and to make disciples of all nations, to go and baptize all that we could baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to go and to teach them to obey all things that you've commanded us. Lord, may we be a people that are going. May we be a people on mission. And may we, may we understand and adopt the, the posture that every believer is a missionary for Jesus Christ. God, help us to see the world with eyes of compassion. Lord, may it turn our stomachs to see the plight and the struggling and suffering of those around us. Lord, rather than moving us to disgust or anger, may it move us to have pity and to demonstrate grace. God, take our lives this morning and use them for your glory and the good of the world. Send us out into the harvest out into the field that we might harvest and bring in a rich harvest for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.